following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. This morning we're going to be looking in um, uh, Exodus chapter 17. This begins a new series. Um, The Israelites are not grumbling anymore, at least not for a while. (laughs) They've gotten better. Uh, and I've called this a uh, group effort because these next three uh, segments, next three passages um, are not real related, but they all kind of have a common theme of um, teamwork, uh, which is an important part of our life. So let's uh, read uh, Exodus 17, verses 8 through 16. I'm going to follow along as I read. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Um, I've actually titled this message, uh, this particular message, um, God is my standard. Uh, I'll explain what that means in a few minutes. It doesn't mean God is our standard as in like a standard of operation, but I'll explain what it means. But before we get to that, back up a little bit. How many of you just love to fight? Anybody? Now, I know you're out there. I know there is, there's one right there. So I knew there's a couple of you, right? You just love it. Most of us, though, really don't like conflict or, or fighting, right? We, we like to avoid it. Um, and even those of us who enjoy a good confrontation, Probably n- nobody uh, hopes that their country or their nation will go into war. Um, and yet, we, we've seen, especially in recent history, uh, that no matter how peace-loving a nation is and how committed they are to avoiding military conflict, um, even the most peace-loving nation uh, is coming under attack these days with terrorist threats and terrorist attacks. And so... Uh, the reality is that sometimes we get drugged into these conflicts. And the same thing is really true of the Christian life. Um, probably most of us don't, don't want uh, conflict, and we would seek peace at any cost. But the reality is that the Bible is clear that we have enemies that are out to attack us. And the Bible names several of these enemies. Uh, chief and foremost, of course, is Satan. Uh, but also the Bible talks about sin, the flesh, 
death and the world as being enemies of the believer. And these are not passive enemies. They're enemies that are uh, serious about destroying your life. And so we have uh, much, as we see here with Israel, we have a couple of options. We can um, decide not to fight, which means you get destroyed. Or we learn how to fight and, and, and learn how to defeat these enemies that are coming against us. But while this story is, is about people fighting with real swords and, and you know, uh, a real battle, it is a great picture and very instructive about how we engage the, the, the spiritual battle, the spiritual enemy that we are all drawn into, whether we like it or not. Uh, so we'll, we'll look at that. Um, so back up to the story. Let's just re- kind of review the story a little bit. Uh, uh, it says in verse 8 that Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Uh, they find themselves under attack. Uh, they weren't looking for this. And what's interesting is they're in some serious wilderness. We don't know exactly where Rephidim is, and we don't know exactly where Mount Sinai is, but we do know it's in a region that's extremely remote, in a desert wilderness area where there is very, very sparsely populated. you think... Uh, the least thing they would have to worry about is getting attacked. <clears throat> uh, they weren't near, uh, as far as we know, a city or a village. They were out of uh, you know, one of these oases that God had opened up for them. Um, but the Amalekites, Amalek, uh, were known to be nomads who ranged all across the deserts from Palestine all the way down into the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, they raised, were known as, uh, uh, for raising camels, and believe it or not, you, know, you look at camels, you think they're kind of slow, right? Actually, camels can, can run 40 miles an hour, or about 60 kilometers per hour, almost as fast as a very fast horse, and on the sand, faster than a horse. And so the way the Amalekites, you know, when you live in the desert, how do you, how do you live? Well, they, had, they, had, they were very creative, and they found that with their camels, they could raid caravans and unsuspecting villages move in with great speed, rob, pillage, and murder, and then move on to the next village. And that's basically how they lived. They were kind of like desert pirates. And so they hear about Israel and think, hey, here's some fair game. And so they go to attack Israel. Um, And the passage before this in chapter 16, it tells us that Israel's only been uh, a month since they left Egypt. So these are a group of people who, just a month earlier, were slaves in Egypt. These are not people trained in combat, although it appears that um, Joshua has been attempting to do some military training, um, and that's kind of implied in the passage when, when Moses tells him to choose men and go fight. Uh, apparently they've armed themselves with some kind of, you know, hose or swords of some sort. Um, so they're somewhat prepared for some battle, but really not, not really prepared yet. But it doesn't matter an enemy attacks, and they really have no choice. Um, I'm sure they would have liked to have sent a thing and said, hey, you know, we're working on this whole battle thing. Could you give us, like, another month? Like, could we do this, say, the 15th of April, right? Well, that's how it works, right? When you're under attack, you, you have one of two options. Either you surrender or don't fight, which in this case, uh, these were bad people, and they were known for their brutality. Uh, they would have killed and plundered and murdered and the way it worked back in those days, 
uh, you didn't just take their gold and their silver, but you took their wives and their daughters as uh, slaves and as as, uh, as wives for your your, your kids. I mean, just don't stand by, right? They were forced to fight. So Moses quickly forms a battle plan, and he says he says to Joshua, "Choose men, not all of them, but choose the men who are <laughs> you know, have a have a shot at this. All right, pick the best guys and go out and fight with Amalek." And he, in verse eight, he, verse nine, he says, "Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand." So God says, you know, put together a, an army and go out and attack Amalek. And, and, and while you're doing that, I'm going to go up on that hill over there and I'm going to stand on that hill with a stick. Like, okay, Moses, really, that's all you got is a stick? That's what you're going to do? Of course, it wasn't just any stick. He says it was the staff of God. And already the Israelites had come to identify Moses' staff with the staff of God as a symbol of God's great might and power. Uh, it was with this staff that, that uh, Moses had dispensed the plagues in Egypt. And it was with this staff that he had divided the waters, part of the waters of the Red Sea. Uh, that he had struck the rock and, and brought forth a spring of water for them to drink. So they understood that this wasn't just a stick. That Moses was going to be standing on the hill um, symbolically showing God's power to bring victory. Um, but it's probably a picture a little bit more than that as well. I don't know if we can advance our slides some. Are they working? If you go forward, I have a picture. Um, back before, there, there's my picture. Uh, those are actually Roman standards, right? That's what I, where I get the word standard from. Those are Roman standards. Um, and really, I believe that the picture that, of what Moses is doing here is he is putting forward a picture as a standard. And, and what, did, what did this really mean? What was a battle standard? If you watch movies of Roman legions, you'll see some guy carrying this big, long pole, right? Well, what was that all about? Well, uh, back in the days before radio and telegraph, uh, organizing and coordinating troops on the field was a very challenging thing. Uh, so the way they early on, long before the Romans, the Romans perfected it, but long before the Romans, they had uh, devised a system where they would raise up a huge pole, uh, usually with some kind of banner or symbol on it, that everybody on the battlefield could see. And uh, they would use that as a, as a focal point, as a place to rally the troops, and it would, it, would, it would give direction. In fact, the Romans actually developed a very elaborate code system where they would... Uh, move the banner and in some way move the pole in some way and it would instruct the troops in how to fight and which direction to go. Uh, and I really believe that what Moses is doing here is he's really uh, holding up his staff as a standard, as a battle standard uh, in, in, this, in this military conflict. Uh, of course, his purpose is not to direct the battle from the hilltop, but rather it is to focus their attention uh, the attention of the Israelites on the one who would win the battle for them. And that was the point of the standard. It was a, it was a, a place to focus their attention. It was also a way to give hope uh, in the midst of battle. And so Moses stands up on a hill where everybody can see, where it's visible and clear, and he holds up with his hands this standard, his staff, the symbol of God's power. And uh, by doing that, he's making a clear statement to all of Israel. You're not going to win this, this battle on your own, by your own power or strength. 
God is going to fight this battle for you. And I'm going to raise up this standard so you can see it, so you can be focused on God's strength and power um, as you fight. Um, so that's exactly what happened. It says in verse 10, Joshua did as Moses told them, and he fought with Amalek, uh, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Right, so... Uh, not only did Israel see this, but God honored it. Right? God honored what Moses was doing, and in a sense, God is invoking uh, Moses is invoking God's power, and God honors that. So when the standard is clearly displayed, God gives them ability, and Israel advances. Uh, but as the battle goes on, uh, if you've ever had to hold your hand up for a long time, I thought about doing this this morning. You know, have everybody just raise their hands up and see who could last the longest. I decided it might be a little distracting. Um, uh, holding a stick up over your head, you know, it doesn't take long and your arms start to get really, really heavy. And so Moses' arms start to slip and all of a sudden the Amalekites start, you know, getting the advantage. He props it back up, Israel gets the advantage. After a while it becomes clear that, you know, Moses, the stick is dipping more than it's raising. So they get him a rock, uh, Aaron and her stand on each side so they can uh, keep that stick up. Um, and by that, Israel prevails. Uh, now, you might, you might be thinking, okay, this just seems weird. I don't get this you know, standard thing. Uh, where is that in the Bible? Well, interestingly, in verse 15, uh, Moses, Moses gives us the answer, right? It says in verse 15, when the battle's all done, it says Moses built an altar to God uh, to, to praise and worship him, and he named the altar what? The Lord is my banner. Uh, if you have an older Bible, it might say he named it Jehovah Nisi, which is just the, the Hebrew words, the Lord is my banner. Uh, the Hebrew word for banner, uh, we, we think of banner as more being the cloth, the flag, right? But actually the word in, in Hebrew really is more about or emphasizes the pole. It's a large pole with or without the banner. And uh, Moses kind of sums it up, what it was all about. The Lord is my banner. He is the one who has given us victory. He is the one that as long as we focused our attention on him, as long as we trusted in his power, the victory was ours. Um, so that's where that image and that picture comes from. Uh, and in verse 14, one other side note, uh, it says in verse 14, The Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Um, the goal of this battle was not just to chase off the Amalekites. Uh, God said, uh, which they did, they succeeded, the Amalekites took off, but God was not going to forget the Amalekites. He says, he says to Moses, I want you to write this down. We are not going to forget this. You are not going to forget this. Joshua is not going to forget this. I am not done with Amalek. I am going to blot out his, name, his memory from the face of the earth. Uh, which is a little ironic because he wrote it down so that we would remember. Uh, but it's a picture, right? It's a picture of wiping Amalek off the face of the planet, uh, which God eventually did. Uh, you might ask, why is God so extreme? Uh, two reasons. One, 
Back in those days, they didn't fight battles just to be defensive. It didn't work that way. When you fought a battle, if you didn't completely destroy your enemy, right, they'd come back. Right? They would rebuild, they would strengthen themselves, they would, they would come back. The only way to really defeat an enemy and get rid of them permanently was to totally wipe them out. Right? Or so dominate them that they were no longer a political power or force. It's just the way it worked. But secondly, uh, God doesn't forget his people, uh, his children, and he doesn't forget his enemies. Right? He does not forget his enemies. And those who attack his children, right, he remembers and he will judge them. Um, so how does this apply to us? Let's jump ahead to our world. Uh, most of us are probably not facing enemies that we're going to take out with a sword. Which is really too bad, because honestly I think this would be a lot more fun and easier than spiritual battle. Because um, this one, one or two things are going to happen. Either I'm going to beat them or I'm going to die. Either way, game over. Um, I kind of like that as a guy who likes to kill stuff, right? That works for me. Sadly, that's not the kind of battle we're engaged in. For us, the, the battles that we face are much different. Uh, right now in your life, what are some of the battles you're in? Right? What, in what ways do you feel under attack in your life? Um, maybe you feel like there are people who are attacking you, who are out to get you, who are out to harm you or to discourage you um, or just making your life miserable. Maybe there are difficult circumstances that you are facing, uh, problems and struggles that just seem impossible to solve. Um, you know, maybe you feel like Thai immigration is your worst enemy, right? Um, of course, we know they're really not. Right? They're just doing their job. Uh, but it can feel that way. Uh, and so, so you know, our focus can be on people, on, on, on obstacles, on, on these circumstances in our life, and we think, these are the battles that I'm fighting. But Scripture is clear that these are not the real enemy, and this is not the real battle. Ephesians 6, 11, and 12 puts it this way. He says, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Right? We know that the real enemy that we are fighting against is not people, it's not circumstances, it is Satan. Satan is out to destroy us, seeking about like a, a, a roaring lion, seeking whom he will devour uh, God, Satan's goal and purpose and plan for your life is to destroy you, to destroy your faith, to uh, plunge you into eternal darkness, to bring defeat to your Christian life. That's our true enemy. Everything else, the people that drive us crazy and the circumstances that we struggle with, those are not the battle, those are not the enemy. But Satan uses those things and is often the power in and through them that that we fight against. Um, and the Bible actually identifies, as I said, several enemies. Satan, it would be the arch enemy. Uh, and you could look at these other things as his tools or his means or his methods or, or whatever. But let me just quickly highlight a few of the enemies that we face in addition to Satan. Uh, first, of course, is sin. Uh, sin is a great enemy of every human being. And uh, it brings the curse of death. 
which is not only our physical death, but sin brings eternal death, eternal judgment, which is separation from the uh, goodness and love of God. Romans tells us the wages of sin is death. And not only that, but even for the believer who has been uh, redeemed, who no longer faces eternal death, for us, sin still poses a serious threat and problem because uh, through sin, it captures us and puts us in bondage and slavery. Romans 6.16 says this, Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And so Paul challenges us not to let sin rule over our mortal bodies, over our life. Uh, another very closely related uh, enemy is our own flesh. Um, sin does not act alone. It has an accomplice and a partner, and that partner is, is our very flesh. Um, what is our flesh? Well, um, it is essentially the desires and longings that we have, our appetites and our hungers. Now, those appetites and hungers and desires are not wrong in themselves, for example, food or pleasure, fun, adventure, sleep. <laughs> those are all good things, right? Uh, nothing wrong with those desires. Uh, but sin leverages these desires and tempts us to satisfy these cravings apart from God's purpose and plan. Uh, so, for example, uh, most of us have a, a, a healthy sense of justice, which is a good thing. We desire Part of what it means for us to be human beings is we desire life to be fair. And kids figure this out when they're about three or four years old, five years old. And if you're a parent and you have a couple kids, it doesn't take long before your kids will tell you, but that's not fair, right? That's not fair. We have this strong sense of justice. Um, but sin gets in the way. Sin takes that desire for justice and it twists it and it it. it aggravates it, it intensifies it, and it turns it into the desire for personal revenge. Personal revenge is not justice. Personal revenge is taking matters into my own hands, and apart from God's plan and God's purpose, it's dealing out my own justice. Um, I have a problem with this. Uh, I want justice, but I also want revenge, especially when I'm driving. This is where my great weakness is. And I struggle with this because I drive and sometimes other people do things that I don't think are actually legal. Um, like, you know, running through red lights 10 seconds after it turns red. Um, I love my favorite one is when, you know, they make a U-turn from like four lanes over, like in front of everybody. And uh, the, the justice part of me is, is it, it kind of enraged because it's dangerous. Right? People could die doing this. I could die. You could wreck my car, you could hurt people. But uh, the revenge part kind of kicks in, and I want, to, I want to get even, right? And this is my, I think I could make a lot of money actually doing this. My, my, like, this is what I want to do. I think what we need to do is mount paintball cannons, paintball machine guns on our car, you know? Somebody does that, you just rip them down with paintballs. Just a, that would just be very gratifying to me. I haven't done it. But it's been so tempting, right? See, that's what the flesh does. The flesh seeks to fulfill its desires in ways that are not in God's plan. 
Another enemy, and perhaps the greatest enemy of all for the believer is, uh, for the people, is death. Right? Death cuts us off from the living, but more importantly, spiritual death cuts us off from the living God for eternity. Last, last enemy that the Bible talks about is the world. Uh, the world uh, really has the idea of the ideas, thinking, and mindset or philosophy of the world. Uh, the world, society, is, is teaching and promoting a message that's contrary to God's truth. 2 Corinthians 10 puts it this way. 10, 4-6 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but we have defined power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. So that's what comes from the world, these arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we must take uh, every thought captive to obey Christ. That's how the world works. The world, these strongholds, are these ideas and these philosophies and arguments uh, that make faith in God impossible or difficult. Uh, one very easy example of this is miracles in the supernatural. The world, society, the world we live in today will tell you miracles are impossible, right? If you believe in the miracles of the Bible, you might as well believe in the tooth fairy and you know the Easter bunny and Santa Claus. Right? It's all in the same category because everybody knows miracles are, are impossible. How could Moses part the waters of the Red Sea? That's ridiculous. Everybody knows that that violates every law of nature and of physics. So you would have to be an idiot to believe that that could really happen. Uh, that's that's a stronghold of the world, right? And sadly, a lot of people get drug into that. Oh yeah, how could the Bible be true if it's full of these incredible, impossible stories? Those things can't happen. Uh, another stronghold of the world is. This argument that if God is good and loving, why is there so much evil in the world? How could a good and loving God allow violence and earthquakes and destruction? Certainly a good and loving God wouldn't let that happen. So the world throws out these ideas to attack and bring down our faith in Christ. So these are the enemies that we face. And um, you can't escape their attack. Every one of us, every day, faces and comes under the attack of these enemies. Uh, Satan is relentless. Uh, I don't know about you, but for me, my flesh is relentless. Um, It doesn't give up easily. And so day after day, we come under attack by these things. So how do we uh, fight them? How does Moses' story back in Exodus help us understand how to deal with these? Um, Well, like Israel we need to know that we are very unqualified and ill-prepared to fight this battle. One of the greatest mistakes we can make is to think that we can take these on. Right? The person who says, yeah, bring on sin, bring on temptation. I'm a rock. I got this down. Right? I can handle this. Paul says to that person, take heed lest you fall. Right? Starting point is to realize we cannot overcome these enemies on our own. Um, We need a standard, like Moses did. Uh, But we have, unlike Moses' rod, which was great, and certainly it was an incredible symbol of God's power that that brought victory, we have a better standard. And of course, our standard is Jesus. 
Uh, he is the standard. He is the power that will give us victory. Jesus, and specifically his work on the cross and the power of his resurrection is the standard that we must look to to overcome and defeat these enemies. Uh, and we do that by looking to the cross. Right? That, that standard of the cross is held up for us and it says we look at the cross, we overcome these enemies. Let's see how that works real quickly. Um, first, the power of the cross over the devil. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says this, Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood in our human bodies, Jesus himself likewise partook of these same things. He took on human flesh. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. When Jesus died on the cross, he took on Satan. It says that by dying he destroyed the power of Satan, which was death. And in so doing, he overcame the devil. Um, so praise God if you're in Jesus. Uh, chances are you will die unless Jesus comes back before then, or you become so spiritual that God just you know does the Elijah thing. That, that probably won't happen to most of us. Um, you're going to die. The Bible's clear that the, the, the real sting, the real power of death is sin, and for us that sting is gone. Right? For us, death is not separation, but it's actually being united with God in his presence in heaven. So Jesus has conquered death. Secondly, uh, he has conquered sin and specifically its operation in our flesh in the cross. Romans 6, 5-8 says this, For we have been, for if, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a, in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Uh, and in Colossians, he says it this way, Colossians 3, 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Right? We, don't, we don't overcome these things by our own strength. Right? We don't over, overcome immorality or covetousness or evil desire by just deciding, I'm not going to be affected by those things anymore. Right? We all have addictions in our life. We are all addicted to sin. We all crave it. We all long for it. We don't overcome that addiction by just willpower or our own strength. Instead, Paul says that we need to daily go to the cross and identify with Jesus' suffering and death for our sin. He says we are crucified with Christ. What does that mean? Honestly, I have no idea. I really have no idea what all that means. But somehow, when Jesus died, we participate through faith in that death. And as we participate by faith in his death, the old part of us that's under the slavery and bondage of sin was crucified with Jesus. It's died. It's done away with. Um, practically what that means is that we need to be focusing on the cross. We need daily to be going to the cross and spending time remembering that its work was to destroy and rip out all those parts of my life that are displeasing to God. Right? The work of the cross in our life is to come in and rip out all that junk and old person and old 
habits and old desires. Uh, and the more we root ourselves in the cross, the more we look to that standard that is high and lifted up, the greater we will experience God's power over sin in our life. Um, we will never stop facing temptation or be, being drawn, being attacked by its desire. But the only way to overcome it is to be constantly looking to the cross. There's power in it. And again, I don't know how it works. I know there's power when we turn daily to the cross. Lastly, uh, overcoming worldly thinking. The cross overcomes worldly thinking. Colossians 2, 8 through 10 says this. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. That's those arguments of the world. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. It says, don't be held captive by those thoughts, those ideas, those philosophies. For in him, that is in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus fully is God, and you have been filled in him, who is the head and rule of all authority. Then in Colossians 3, 2 and 3, he says, Therefore set your minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. How do we overcome the ideas of the world? Same thing. We go to the cross. We go, we, we die with Jesus. That's the power that enables us to turn away from these worldly ideas that hold us slave and captive. And it gives us the power and capacity to set our mind on things above. What does this look like? Well, one example, going to the idea of miracles, how impossible miracles are. Uh, when we turn to Jesus, when we recognize he's God, fully God in human form, and we reflect on him and his life, we see that Jesus walked on water. He turned five loaves and two fish into food for 5,000. He raised the dead, and ultimately he himself was raised from the dead. And when he was raised, he was raised with a body that was not part of this world. He could walk through doors. He could appear and disappear. Right? He, he could do like Star Trek-y kind of stuff without a, without a beamer. Right? There was something about his life, about the quality of his body, of his experience that was transcendent. In other words, it was outside and beyond the laws of this world. Um, he rose from the dead. What does all that mean? It means that God is not locked into or part of the laws of nature. Science can't explain everything. There's more, much more. There is a universe out there beyond the universe we know of. And Jesus is living proof of it. Right? The more we turn to the cross and what he did in his resurrection, we see that God is not bound by the laws of physics. Right? He operates above and beyond them, and he can do anything he wants. Right? He can do anything he wants because he's the creator who made it. As we focus on Jesus, it gives us the power to focus on the things above, not on the things of this world. And it breaks the power of worldly thinking over us. So the key to all this is that uh, the cross is our great standard, and we need to keep our eyes fixed and focused on that. And praise God, he's given us some incredible standard bearers. We don't have the time to talk about them, but things like communion, celebrating the Lord's Supper, 
um, is a standard bearer that helps us look to the cross. Baptism is a reminder as people participate in baptism of what Jesus has done for us. Uh, Gospel-focused preaching is a standard bearer that lifts up the cross. Um, Christ-centered worship, not just man-centered, me-centered worship, but Christ-centered worship lifts up Jesus and helps us focus on him. Uh, The point is that we need to surround ourselves with these reminders, these standard bearers that focus our attention to Jesus on the cross. That's how we will overcome the enemies that are trying to destroy us. Let's close with just these last couple thoughts real quick. Uh, we are also called to be standard bearers who lift up Jesus. Right? One of the calls of our life is to be lifting up Jesus to make him known to the world around us, but also to make him known to fellow believers. Jesus is not only the answer for the lost and dying world, he is the power for each other. Uh, How do we do that? Um, Are we discipling people in a way that brings them to Jesus? Are we teaching and training and raising up people who know how to see Jesus as the solution to their problems? As we counsel and mentor friends, uh, there's a lot of good techniques out there to counsel and mentor and encourage people. Uh, we ought to be careful that we don't use techniques that become a substitute for Jesus. Right? The ultimate answer is Jesus and his cross. Um, but beyond that, it says, uh, I love this picture of Moses. Uh, he is not a lone ranger. right? He's not up there, Superman, holding up the head that uh, rod all by himself. He's a weak guy who can't do it by himself. I just love this picture of Aaron and her coming alongside, propping him up. As a standard bearer, don't be a lone ranger superhero. We all need people to prop us up. We need to be doing more of this uh, as a team, in partnership with others. Uh, Take, for example, evangelism. We all know we're supposed to do evangelism. And I I take that call very seriously. But evangelism has always been kind of challenging for me because I'm an extreme introvert. What that means is, even with people I really know and like, coming up with something to talk about is very difficult for me. So uh, talking to total strangers and engaging them in some kind of conversation, I'd rather eat bugs. And there's not much else I would, I mean, I hate bugs, right? But that would be better than trying to engage people in conversation. It's just stressful for me, right? And for a long time, I've, and I've had this vision, and I feel like the church has said, you need to go be an evangelist. You need to go out there and talk to total strangers you don't know about Jesus. It's like, or even talk to friends about Jesus. It's like, ah, I don't know how to talk to people at all, much less about Jesus, right? Um, but, you know, God did not call us to be lone ranger evangelists. Now, some people can do that great. Some people can get out there and they can do that. But I, I don't think that's what God calls us to. He says, you know, you have your part. And I love to tell people about Jesus. I love to talk about the Bible. Just don't make me initiate the relationship, right? If somebody else initiates the relationship, I'm all, I'm all in. Right? So 
So I remember several years ago, a group of high school kids wanted to reach out to their friends and tell them about Jesus. They said, we want to have this discussion group. Would you come and we'll get the kids. You come and you talk to us and answer questions. I said, yeah, I'd love that. So I said, I have to start it. You just bring them and they ask the questions. I'd love to talk to them about who Jesus is. Don't be a lone ranger. Uh, Do ministry and partnership with other people. Let other people prop up your weaknesses. And likewise, find ways that you can come alongside others and prop them up. Partner with them. Or you can bring your gifts to encourage them. Last of all, verse 15 says, As Moses built an altar and he called the name of it, The Lord is my banner. Uh, Moses was very quick to worship. He was very quick to praise God when God gave victory. As you experience God's victory in your life, are you quick to praise him and thank him for what he has done? Um, it's interesting that it says when, when Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. The word there, held up, is the same word that we would use for exalted. You, and I don't think that's the exact meaning there, but it's, it's the picture. Moses was exalting God and God's power. Right? What are we doing to lift up Jesus, to exalt him? Uh, As we experience his victory, are we quick to exalt and give him praise? That he is our banner. He is our standard. He is the one in whom we will overcome. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.